I've really been enjoying the Dr. Pitcoin podcast because Arthur and Mark are watching the Craig Wright COPA trial. In many ways, it's the culmination of all of Arthur's obsessive documenting of Craig Wright's numerous lies and frauds. And now it's in front of a judge. It's not a jury trial, so it's not a place where Craig can cosplay as a scientist and confuse everyone with technobabble. It's a judge trial where all of the evidence has been submitted to the judge. The question is, can Craig Wright continue to call himself Satoshi? It's the core question, and it seems to be going against him quite seriously after five days. It's tricky when all your evidence is forged, and uh, it's rather trivial to point out that the evidence is forged. And then when your defense isn't, well, uh, I can explain that forged evidence, your defense is, well, it's the people around me. It's it's the people you hired. It's the people I hired. It's my assistants. It's not my fault. I, c- I can't account for that. That could be because I did it through a Citrix Metaframe session, which is bonkers, by the way. As somebody who used to be a Citrix certified technician, the idea that his Citrix session was rewriting his documents for him and, and putting them in formats and file formats that didn't exist at the time is crazy. Perfectly formatting them and like inventing it's crazy. file formats that would then become standard years down the line. That's not how it that's just not how it works. It's just a remote desktop protocol. <laughs> So this has really been something. It, it, and, you know, even kind of seeing the judge every now and then get a little snippy as far as judges get. I try not to get my hopes up, though, because you just never know how these scumbags can, you know, just keep kicking this can down the road. But it really does feel like they've got them. I suppose time will tell. I've, I've been watching it go down on social media each day. One of my favorite excerpts is the Johnny throwaway. So Craig's one of Craig's claims to be Satoshi is that he has this email with some credit card information where he claims to have paid for the Bitcoin.org domain name with his credit card, and therefore he's Satoshi, though he was like the one who registered it. But this evidence was quickly debunked by a forensic investigator, and it's fake for so many reasons. And then Craig says, oh yeah, I knew it was fake. Sure, I knew that. And then the barrister says, okay, but you used this as evidence that you were Satoshi in the Kleinman case. Why did you allow this? And then Craig says, oh, um, well, I did tell my lawyers in the climbing case the documents for fake, and they, they still submitted it. And then the barrister says, okay, so which lawyer did you tell that to? And then Craig says, I don't think I can say due to attorney-client privilege. And then the judge says, actually, you can say. It's not a problem. And then Craig says, uh, it was Johnny. I probably don't remember Johnny's name. I haven't dealt with him in a while. Can I get back to you on his last name? Okay, so you just invented a lawyer named Johnny, Craig. Okay, so then the judge says, okay, so what firm was the lawyer from? And then Craig is like, um, he's an American firm that was basically dealing with one of the American entity companies. He's a corporate lawyer, but I can get his name back very quickly. I just can't remember it off the top of my head. So he's just invented a whole lawyer to blame why he submitted fake evidence on. And he just does this for every question. Yeah, he's brilliant and has a perfect recollection until he doesn't. It's just pathetic. (laughs) It's also kind of sad that this specter has been haunting Bitcoin development for so long because he's an absolute joke, but he has managed to frighten off some Bitcoin developers and there aren't that many of them. They're very few. And maybe they just stopped publicly contributing to Bitcoin and came back as anons, but, but, you know, maybe some of them didn't. And so a very scarce resource of experience, technical competency, passion for Bitcoin development was attacked by this absolute clown. And it's taken so long 
to shut him up and deprive him of this legal harassment strategy that he's been using for 10 years now. And it's happening in the most public but clowning way possible. That will be the sweet justice is that uh, he's doing this in front of everyone. There's people there that are capturing this live and they're tweeting it as he says these ridiculous things, quote for quote, verbatim, verbatim. And we're all we're all going to have a memory and a history of it. So that'll be that'll be our justice is that he's beclowned in front of all of us. And it's pro- provably so. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on February 9th, 2024. I'm your Bitcoin dad and I'm here remotely as always with. Hey, it's me. It's Chris. Welcome back. Hey, friend. Hi. On today's show, we're covering news that FTX customers are being paid back in full, but with one weird caveat. A protocol called Citria claims to be a zero-knowledge Ethereum virtual machine built on Bitcoin. What does that mean? Is it a real thing? Does it actually work? We will get into that. In economics, the Chinese stock market has dropped again at the sudden replacement of a chief regulator. This is kind of a flag about issues in China. Why does it matter? Because it forecasts Casts the trajectory of growth and government intervention in the economy. And so as things get worse, intervention becomes more likely and uh, Bitcoin will pump. We have a crazy story from Canada, which seems jealous about the U.S.'s attempt to politicize energy policy around Bitcoin mining with a new bill that makes certain discussions around fossil fuels illegal. And then in privacy, our favorite private Twitter viewing front end knitter is dead. X killed it. And then in altcoins, we have a just terrible article from Arthur Hayes, but it gives us some idea about trends in the next altcoin season that will accompany the Bitcoin bull run. And then in Bitcoin education, we will get into rollups relating to the Citria story. What's a rollup? Why do we want it? What does zero knowledge mean? We'll get into all of that. And then we have some boosts and that's our show. So I'm, I'm very happy to hear that FTX customers are going to be paid back in full. You know, I, I saw that headline, Dad, and I thought, well, good news. I don't need to read any further. There must not be any caveats here. Good to hear. They're getting their money back. Well, if the price of Bitcoin were $16,000, they'd be getting their money back because they are being reimbursed at the dollar value of their crypto holdings at the time of the FTX insolvency. There's a long legal document about how it would be way too complicated to figure out the crypto amounts and the relative values and sort of give people back the crypto value. Just too complicated. We can't figure it out. The bankruptcy estate has racked up like over $200 million in fees, but they can't figure out how to refund people their actual crypto holdings. So we'll just say Bitcoin value at the time that you lost access to it. And so it's a big haircut, even though it's technically being paid out in full. The irony of these, and this has happened before, is part of the reason Bitcoin was at $16,000 was because of the shenanigans at FTX, both what they were doing and the fallout from everything just completely going kaboom over there. That So the irony is the value of their holdings was down because of FTX. Then they get screwed by FTX. And now they're getting one screwed time more, one time more, just because they were the drivers of the price action in the first place. It's, um, I only laugh because, oh, I don't know. I, this happened to me with uh, Mount Gox, you know? So like been here, seen this, know how you feel, but, uh, you will survive. And, um, I don't know. There's some sort of irony that it just keeps happening. Humans never learn from past mistakes, apparently. I first heard about Citria from a 
Twitter post from Seth for Privacy. He actually has Activate Ellen Hans as his Twitter handle. And Ellen Hans is, of course, a Bitcoin improvement proposal from friend of the show, Brandon Black. But Citria is essentially a zero-knowledge Ethereum EVM, Ethereum virtual machine, that can somehow anchor itself to the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, why would this be interesting or a good thing? Well, it can potentially use zero-knowledge rollups to do a lot of transactions in this virtual machine and then create a proof of all these transactions and then put that proof into a Bitcoin transaction. And now it is a very trust-minimized layer two because you can validate the zero-knowledge proof on the Bitcoin blockchain quite easily. And there's some trust assumptions around who's validating the proof, I guess, before it's written on the blockchain. But the structure of this is that you need very few honest actors for this to be a relatively safe and trustworthy way of making layer two transactions. And because this roll-up technology compresses potentially a very large number of transactions on the layer two into a single Bitcoin transaction, this is both a scaling technology, but also you've got an Ethereum virtual machine. And for all the mud we throw at Ethereum, it's the most mature smart contract platform in the crypto sphere. And so you can write smart contracts on it. You can create automated market makers. You can do all sorts of things on there. The caveat being you need altcoins to do all those things, because what's the point of an automated market maker if there aren't two native assets to trade? So you actually need Bitcoin and then another asset in order to have a reason to have an automated market maker. So where should we start, Chris? I can tell you're very excited about this development. I am. I, I'm sorry. I couldn't. I couldn't really say I am. Um, um, could we start with why Bitcoin needs this? Or don't we have liquid? We have lightning. We have fediment. Why do we need a ZK rollup? So I think that the difference in the security model, I think a ZK rollup is, is an improvement over both the lightning and liquid security model. Because if the zero knowledge cryptography is well formulated and well tested, then the security of this layer two is cryptographic. And so cryptographic security is the best security. We don't need game theory to protect users' funds in this layer two. We have pure cryptography, and that makes it much more similar to on-chain Bitcoin transactions in the sort of security assumptions. Lightning in its current iteration is clearly weaker than Bitcoin on-chain transactions because you need to have a Lightning node that can publish a fraud proof, essentially a, a current channel state, if your channel partner attempts to publish an old state that would potentially steal your coins. So you can see how Lightning is, there's a cryptographic element, but there's also a game theory element where your channel partner isn't going to try to steal funds because they know that you're probably online and you can publish a fraud proof that will punish them and take their funds if they try to steal. So you see how that's weaker than just a pure cryptographic solution? Yeah, I like that. Okay, I follow. And then with Liquid, Liquid is basically a multisig. You send yeah. funds into the multi-sig, but it's configured in such a way that you can take that send transaction and use it to unlock liquid tokens on the liquid chain. But then it's a one-way peg. Getting out of the liquid chain requires you to sell your liquid tokens to someone who will buy them and sort of arbitrage some sort of price difference between liquid on the liquid chain and Bitcoin on the main chain. 
So it's a one-way function. You can get in, but technically you need cooperation or Permission. you need to pay someone to get out. And where's the fundamental security of liquid? The model is it's that you trust the liquid federation with their Blockstream built hardware security modules to essentially sign blocks and not steal the Bitcoin and behave in the way you expect. So there's a lot of trust there. All right. You've convinced me a bit here. So... And then, of course, this would rely on, you said, BitVM. So we're pretty early into that. And I think this is where the maybe hype or the problems with this Citria proposal begin to come into focus because there's a Stacker News post from Super Testnet who is actively developing BitVM. And he says that there are only seven total people who are working on the BitVM code base. None of them have managed to pre produce anything other than a proof of concept. And they don't know these Citria people. So if they're really building some kind of zero knowledge validator into a BRC20 transaction that they can then put on Bitcoin, and there's BitVM in there too, they would probably know them. They would probably be contributing or asking questions in the BitVM GitHub, right? But they're not doing that. And it sounds like the Citria source code is not yet open source, but they say they plan to open source it. I listened to a really long, really boring podcast that interviewed the Citria developer or maybe business leader. I'm not sure if he's an actual developer, but I mean, he, he could talk quite technically. But the thing is, I mean, I have to say, oh, so have you built on Bitcoin before? Oh, yeah, we've done Bitcoin things, but never built a project. Oh, um, like what things? Oh, well, you know, just some just some open source contribution. Okay, what open source contribution? Oh, well, but you know, they just won't name names. So I mean, it, it feels like they're definitely coming out of the Ethereum altcoin space. You know, my vibe is that everyone who's built on Ethereum has already done that. They know that there's not a lot of runway. There's not a lot of milk in that cow of Ethereum. You need to do something new at this point. But you've learned all the skills on Ethereum. You know how to build an automated market maker using an EVM. If you can build an EVM on Bitcoin, a lot of people would be interested in that. And so I think there's you know, probably the calculus is there's a lot of interest in bringing Ethereum type altcoin scam abilities to Bitcoin, because then all of the Ethereum scammers would jump on that and they would use your protocol and consult with you and you know pay you to help them develop that stuff. So I think there's a lot of money to be made if you can be the first person to enable Ethereum type shenanigans on top of Bitcoin. And obviously we have Rootstock, which is sort of does this, but like Liquid, I think there's more trust involved and just hasn't taken off. It's just not super interesting for some reason. It does seem there are investors on the sideline ready to, to back ideas like this. And it didn't work before because we did it on Ethereum or we did it on Solana or whatever. But this time, this time it'll work because we'll do it on Bitcoin. What do you mean it didn't work before? Uniswap was a huge success for the super early investors, creators, and their friends and family who got all those free Uniswap tokens and then sold them for real money. That is true. The the VC investors did very well. They got they got early access, and I think they've all made pretty good money on all their altcoin investments. So yeah, huh? Well, mm, don't really think I look forward to it, but I hope maybe it means a little bit more development goes towards core Bitcoin project. But uh, <laughs> we'll see about that. Some of this stuff has to actually make it its way into Bitcoin, too. And good luck, right? I mean, that's a battle of the ages. Well, I'm just thinking about your conversations on your Coda radio show. When I listen to you, I feel like you're saying that technical development, new ideas, new technologies, they're so very close to scams. 
in some situations. And so there's always going to be kind of like hype and misdirection and maybe even outright lying around these new developments. And the core, like Craig Wright shows us, the way to tell a great lie is to mix 25% lies with 75% truth. I don't know if Citria is a real thing. I'm skeptical, but there might really be something here. But they are offering a solution to a Bitcoin scalability problem, a Bitcoin feature problem. Rollups do solve that, or or they are a solution to that. And we know that Bitcoin doesn't scale at the layer one. There is just not enough block space for 100 million Bitcoin users. And if we really think that Bitcoin is a asset and a network and a protocol that everyone around the world is going to want to use, then yeah, we need rollups for sure. At the same time, is the first proposal going to be the one that makes it? I don't know. So that's kind of my perspective on that. You know, just in general, when we kind of think about this investing in these types of projects that will run on top of Bitcoin, do you think any of this also is stable coins, right? Because I think a lot of us have realized stable coins are here to stay. And if you agree to that, then you kind of have to also agree that altcoins are here to stay because all the popular stable coins run on some sort of altcoin at the moment. The only way to fix that would be to bring that kind of capability over to Bitcoin. And that's risky because a stable coin is an asset that has value because you think the issuer has a dollar asset that they can sell for dollars if you want to redeem the stable coin at some point. So it means that as there's more stable coin value from a single issuer on a blockchain, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Tron, like it or not, that stable coin issuer becomes an important entity on that chain. Because if there is a fork where some people want the chain to make changes, some people don't want them, maybe it has implications for the decentralization of the system or the centralization or adding permissioned activity or not. If the stable coin is holding, like let's say, like Tether, there's $100 billion of stable coins. They're all on Bitcoin. And there's two forks. And one fork is we keep Bitcoin decentralized and freedom money. And the other fork is, well, we add a KYC field uh, so that we can do better legal compliance when we make transactions and we can KYC everything. And then the stablecoin issuer says, yeah, we're going to go with this KYC fork. So all of your stablecoins on the freedom money fork, we're not going to honor those. We're not going to redeem those. They're worth nothing now. Well, now you've got a billion dollars of leverage to get people to agitate for the KYC fork. It's a simplistic example, but you can see how having other assets on top of Bitcoin create new stakeholders in the network that can exert a financial and political agenda. I completely agree. I just don't think it's trouble we necessarily want, or at least we don't want to just walk into it because we can, because the technology is possible. I think when you look at a savings technology and an asset that's supposed to be something that people can store their life energy into, I don't know if it needs to do a great deal more than it does currently. I think Bitcoin's near perfection now in some ways, at least from a store of value standpoint. What about a scalability standpoint? Well, we have layer two solutions. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, it depends on what you're scaling for. Are you, are you scaling for everyone to buy their coffee with Bitcoin or are you scaling for it to be used as a store of value by most people and, and you know maybe a settlement layer for, for banks and nations? Like, What are you scaling for? I think that you kind of need to have both in a sense. Maybe you don't need coffee on layer one, but I think that if Bitcoin is money, then you kind of do need to be able to make transactions with Bitcoin with some kind of user experience that isn't crazy with fees that aren't crazy. So maybe yeah, that happens yeah. on a higher layer. 
I mean, that is why I have been really, really overall very bullish about lightning, even though it does have its problem, because I, I think it does that for us. Yeah, but the problem with lightning is that it's clearly becoming a custodial solution, I think. I, I, I think it definitely is. And if it's a custodial solution, then it's going to be regulated. And so there are some projects like Cashew and... Yeah. Exactly. Whatever the mint is, Fediment, that tries to inject some kind of security model and decentralization and some kind of assurance that the custodian isn't just going to regulate you and take your funds. At the same time, from a legal perspective, those custodial relationships, I think, are very dangerous. And it's pretty clear to me that the financial repression will escalate until all of those activities of crypto custody, regardless of whether it's a federation or what, are going to be regulated. And therefore, if you're not complying, you're facing hundreds of years in jail. That's a possibility. I think, you know, it kind of depends on how we use that technology. We may end up using that stuff just for our spending sats. And so maybe you can dynamically spin those up amongst a group that's organized through an app or a website that exists ephemerally for a month or two. And, you know, that's this is your spending. This is your spending pot pot for a bit. And then you still cold storage your savings sats. I, I don't know what the future looks like, but I just feel like I don't necessarily like the idea of bringing in a lot of this altcoin behavior or even just stablecoins on top of Bitcoin because of the different incentives and the different cohorts it brings in with it. Like we might met, I think, and I, I know this is a kind of a classic conservative Bitcoin point, and I don't normally go this route, but I do think we risk messing up a good thing during a very important part of the adoption curve for a currency, which is the store of value. And, uh, you know, you start making an application layer and then it's a technology platform. Uh, you know, it's a it's a data center application. It's not a uh, it's not a savings technology for people. And you can see that in Citria's docs because they are labeling Bitcoin as a data availability layer. It's very Ethereum type language and kind of a platform view of what's happening on Bitcoin. Are they are they going to pay me for that space on my node or am I just are we just going to work out all of the indie node operators because you well, know, they're going to the pay functionality. for the transaction. They're going to pay for the BRC20 transaction. They can already do that. I guess what I'm kind of getting at is that one, the technology to put arbitrary stuff into Bitcoin has always existed, but it didn't get really popular until ordinals and BRC20 and ordinal inscriptions. And so they can do this. If they can figure out a way to kind of make this work and just dump the data in a BRC20 JSON file that, yes, will go into the chain history, but doesn't necessarily take a huge amount of chain state, potentially, depending on how they do it, then they can do this. So in a way, I think the cat's kind of out of the bag. And the question now is, can they actually make the roll-up work on Bitcoin? And I think that, frankly, if they can create effective roll-ups on Bitcoin, that's potentially a great thing because not every roll-up has to be an Ethereum altcoin speculative playground. You can have your super private confidential transaction roll-up, potentially. You can do whatever you want with these things. And so, yes, that's kind of like Ethereum and their crazy L2 boom in the last cycle. But if there's real value in these things, then people will use them. And I think that it could potentially make Bitcoin more useful and therefore more adopted by more people. So it's a double-edged sword, in my opinion. I don't disagree with that. Okay. Well, you know, something that I think puts a lot of things in perspective, both here in the States and in China, is today as we record, which is February 9th, NVIDIA is now worth as much as the entire Chinese stock market. One company. 
It's got to be AI, right? It's definitely AI, I'm guessing. You got to get them AI chips, you know? You can't have super intelligent computers without the chips to make them smart. And AI, and I guess NVIDIA was in the right spot at the right time for those AI chip demands. And so is Sam Altman going to buy NVIDIA after he raises $5 trillion? No, no, $7 trillion. $7 trillion. $7 trillion. Sorry. <laughs> Just for context, the entire US economy last year was $25 trillion. The economy of China is less than $18 trillion. And so $7 trillion is basically the GDP of Germany and the UK and maybe the Netherlands combined. So it's, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like the total productive output of 200 million people. And that's what he wants to raise. So silly. To build chips, which would require massive amounts of energy and resources to produce at that scale. So maybe talking about this fundraise might be illegal in Canada in the future if that bill we have in the notes passes. <laughs> maybe it should be because it's bonkers. Seven trillion dollars is absolutely bonkers. I threw in an article that came to my attention because I'm a huge fan of Jeff Schneider about how the boss of the main China securities regulator, Yi Huiman, was fired very suddenly. And it's kind of a shock because when the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, does important front-facing personnel replacements, they generally signal them far in advance to make sure that everything looks under control and well-planned and whatnot. So a sudden firing of a securities regulator definitely has to do with the fact that the Chinese stock market is down precipitously over the last six months. And this is causing some domestic agitation in China. I was reading a blog by a, a Chinese reporter who opened a brokerage account with 10,000 yuan and he was trading around and he was up for a bit and now he's at like 3,000 yuan. And it's really interesting because he's, he's saying like, you know, the government really needs to take responsibility for letting people get hurt in this market. You know, essentially the government needs to make the stock market go up again. And I always thought this was a funny point of view, which I heard a lot in China, especially in the uh, 2017 Shanghai stock market pump and then dump. Because, you know, when you establish yourself, like the CCP has, as the single source of law, order, growth, national security, everything, they essentially take responsibility for everything that happens in China. And sometimes they find people to blame, like, you know, they'll, they'll sort of stir up uh, nationalist fervor against Japan or the Philippines around some sort of border dispute to, to sort of rally around the flag. But you can't blame your stock market on external forces. Everyone knows this is, this is what's happening domestically, right? So it's odd that a stock market dump can become a domestic political issue because why isn't the government protecting us? You know, you, you manage the whole economy. Why aren't you managing this? And it seems that this sudden replacement of the securities regulators chairman uh, seems to be sort of another flag here that uh, China's getting, or, or Xi Jinping, the dictatorial ruler of China, is getting very nervous around the situation there. Would this sort of be like taking Gary out uh, as political cover for bad market activity here in the States? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It would be like firing Gary Gensler after the stock market slides 60%. <laughs> okay. So why do we care about this? What, uh, you know, why, why is this in the podcast? What does this have to do with Bitcoin? Well, uh, my view is that China is a forward indicator of where the global economy is going and therefore where government intervention in financial markets is going. I linked to a chart of the Chinese central bank balance sheet 
and uh, it's not very detailed, but you can see the the trend. And essentially, the PBOC's balance sheet has increased by, uh, I think, almost 25% since July 2023, a, a really fast ramp up in uh, assets held on the central bank balance sheet. So what does this mean? It means that the central bank of China is engaged in the kind of uh, financial suppression and banking system reserve creation that the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Japan has been doing for decades now. You don't do that when your financial system is working. It's a last-ditch effort to do something to try and get banks to lend and banks to create more financial activity, to, to, to create more money that stimulates the economy. There's another chart that I don't have in the notes, but you can see that the amount of dollars held in China, mainly on the central bank balance sheet, was increasing uh, until around uh, 2014, 2015, at which point it sort of stalled and now it's decreasing. As dollars flew into China, that was money creation. That was the euro dollar system sending dollars into China where they were then put to work creating infrastructure and jobs and growth. When that process stopped or stalled in 2014, this is when financial pressure in the financial system and banking system in China began to increase. And this was when the PBOC attempted to embark on a Western-style financial repression, yield curve control, liquidity creation, all of those acronyms that we know did not result in much growth in the US or Japan since our respective financial crises. So what does this mean? It means that there are growth problems. It means that there is political concern around these problems. And so there's a desire to do something about them. And this, I think, for non-Chinese listeners, suggests that our governments will be making interventions into our financial markets in the near to median future. It's interesting because I think that coincides with our Bitcoin halving cycle. It might be a really wild cycle as a result of that. I think with the ETFs alone, it's probably going to be a pretty wild happening cycle. But if it's coupled with a need for financial market stimulus in the traditional economy, then I think it's really going to be completely bonkers, probably. Yeah, Uncle Jay is already saying that, you know, we're probably going to see rate cuts in June, assuming everything goes well. Assuming the market does well, they're, uh, they're aiming for rate cuts in June. But if anything goes sideways, like when the BTFP dries up in March or anything else, they're going to have to cut rates sooner. And then, yeah, it's that would be a wild combo. Uh, rate cuts and happening at the same time. Stimulus increasing. I, I It's a little scary to think what that could do for short-term price action, actually. It's a little face-ripping. So what's the problem with this analysis of increasing central bank balance sheet capacity as stock market decreases, as sort of fears about the financial system decrease? Well, the, the problem with this view is what if yield curve control and quantitative easing actually work? So if Jay Powell is right, then I'm wrong. And then this sort of balance sheet expansion of the central bank will result in growth. And maybe we get a soft landing eventually for the first time in history. But I think the balance of evidence is that when we see central bank intervention in financial markets, it's always post hoc. They're, they're, not, they're not ahead of the curve. This is a sign that things have already broken and are accelerating. And they're sort of desperately trying to stomp on the brakes, but you know they're already going at 100 miles an hour. And it's they're probably not going to be able to stop before they have some kind of contraction. I don't really understand how that impacts us in the States. Does, it, does that mess with our markets pretty heavily? Do we see a lot of chaos blow up, blowback from China? 
Absolutely. I think that there are a lot of vectors for this to affect uh, U.S. markets and therefore global markets. One issue is that U.S. treasuries are still a savings vehicle for Chinese corporate and financial entities. So maybe they're held at the central bank level or maybe at the corporate level. But as conditions in China deteriorate, they're going to start selling treasuries. So there seems to be a lot of demand for treasuries right now, which is not a bullish growth narrative. It's actually a flight to safety, I think you could argue. So it might not necessarily cause a problem if Chinese entities start selling treasuries. It, you know, it doesn't necessarily cause a glut. That means that the Fed has to buy them all and create more sort of market upset. But if you know China is the supply chain hub of the world. So the question is, why is China going into recession? Doesn't everyone around the world want their goods? Oh, wait, what if they don't? So if China is going into recession, it probably means their trading partners, which is literally every country in the world, are also in some sort of trouble. So, th so the issue is that everything happens at once. All countries go into recession and contract at once because economies don't actually stop at national borders. You know, we're really in a global economy and there are lots of linkages and interchanges between national economies and it's very hard to separate them out. But the way that we politically organize and the way that we do our economic data is on a national level and it's just not really reflective of how a global economy works, in my opinion. Yeah, that's very fascinating because yeah, with the numbers we're always looking at are the national numbers. I feared that would be your answer when I asked. <laughs> and I, you know, you have to wonder, like, the knock-on effects of that definitely lead to more monetary stimulus policy from probably a lot of the central banks. So it won't just be in the U.S. then. It'll be it'll be all over the place. Well, maybe we'll get lucky and uh, they'll use that to invest in good, clean, long-lasting nuclear energy, right? I'm sure that's what Canada is doing. I'm sure Canada is planning to invest in energy because, you know, they have so much natural resources up there. So the United States and Canada, I'm sure we're going to just come together and use that money printing for good. And there is a Twitter post which demonstrates that the ERCOT grid in Texas is currently pricing a megawatt of electricity at negative $1, but the ISO grid in New England is pricing a megawatt at $38. Holy smokes. What does this mean? Well, if you've got a negative electricity price, it means you need to pay for someone to consume that electricity. It means you have a lot of excess capacity. So that's a grid where Bitcoin mining probably makes a lot of sense because you have a energy consumer of last resort so they can buy energy when prices are super low and stabilize that grid. And then they can turn off when prices reach $38 a megawatt and Bitcoin mining is no longer profitable. I mean, we are seeing two years of this happening now at ERCOT and that's why this, they have the capacity where they can actually have a negative price for a moment. It's huge. I mean, it shows you it's working, Dad. And uh, uh, that Energy Administration Registry doesn't account for any of this grid participation programs at all. But yet we have just this beautiful example of before the Bitcoin mining operations did the grid participation program, they were having rolling blackouts and people were dying in Texas. We're three years into it now and they have negative price points and the grid remains online for, for the summer and the winter. Right, because a negative electricity price is associated with blackouts because you have excess energy on the grid. Oh my God, where do we put it? We don't want this thing to overload. So if you can kind of have these emergency sinks of power, whether it's these power dumps you were talking about that just turns it into heat and wastes it, or a Bitcoin mine that turns it into SHA-256 sums 
and Elizabeth Warren would say, and waste it, you know, then you can weather these uh, fluctuations in demand. Yeah, waste it, except for then there's a market for it, right? Like, it's so hilarious. It's 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 both a dangerous uh, uh, currency that North Korea uses to fund their nuclear program, and it's also worthless, so the energy use is wasted. You can't have it both ways, Liz. Wow, so they're, uh, just, they're just printing nukes out of uh, thin air? <laughs> Yeah, using Bitcoin, I guess. Um, I just think this is th- this little energy story is fascinating uh, just to see it work. And I hope that I hope that the Bitcoin mining community is able to properly present and communicate this information because otherwise, I, I just feel like they're going to be coming after the energy use. Energy use is is the next. It, it is currently the big hot topic, and I've also seen it suggested online that perhaps we will see an energy use choke point 3.0 style style program where they're going to just start coming after companies not using the law but using all the mechanisms they use in the choke point programs to go after power usage of Bitcoin mining. Right. And to go after grid operators or power providers and saying, you know, listen, I hear you're selling energy to Bitcoin miners. Uh, we don't like that. So we might need to uh, run an environmental impact assessment on your power plant or something like that. Yeah. And that's all it takes for those com- for those power companies to stop doing deals with Bitcoin miners. That's all it takes. It doesn't take like FBI agents showing up. It doesn't, doesn't take a Senate hearing breathing down their necks and making them come testify. It's just simply saying, yeah, we're going to come take a look around if you're if you're working with these Bitcoin companies because we're a little concerned about that. Yeah, because that, that's that's very costly for these regulated entities. So the counterpoint to this conversation around the politicization of energy in the U.S. is a a draft law in the House of Commons of Canada, which proposes to criminalize the promotion of fossil fuels. Now, I you know I personally think that climate change is a thing that's happening. I mean, in Washington state, our winter snowfall is at a record low, and that's actually potentially going to impact our availability of drinking water in the future. So I think that there's something going on here. I don't think that the solution is to uh, freak out and, uh, you know, try to sort of uh, eliminate fossil fuels, because I think that the fact is that a lot of things just run on fossil fuels. So if you want to have modern civilization, specifically agriculture or transportation, then you're going to need to have a bunch of fossil fuels. And frankly, even if you want to build electric cars, those sort of plastic uh, bodywork, you know, these these vinyl seats, you know, a lot of the components, the wheels, a lot of the components of electric cars and things like that are actually petroleum byproducts. I mean, they're not gasoline, but they're byproducts from plastic and other chemical processes. So the idea that you can just eliminate fossil fuels or demonize the producers of them is, in my view, incredibly emotional and unproductive to actually creating sustainable energy. And this bill is an extreme example of that because uh, essentially it makes uh, you know talking about fossil fuels, uh, publishing articles about fossil fuels illegal with a uh, large fine associated with it. The, the other thing it does, and I, this is really common in the EU too, is they'll, they'll propose a new bill and they'll load it with the language all about their commitments to drive down the use of fossil fuels and their carbon goals by these certain years and all of that. And so they kind of enshrine the enshrine, they kind of enshrine that goal over and over again into various bills. And this bill about advertising for fossil fuels does the very exact thing. It, it lays out their goal to, you know, reduce carbon, to be carbon neutral by 2050, to phase out fossil fuels. I, I don't know. I guess that's how you make something like this, that even though the people have never voted for, this has never been put up to any kind of vote by the people at all. Like, And no politician directly runs on these as a platform. And yet they enshrine it in just about every bill they create. And I guess I guess that's how you get to consensus. I, I don't know. And I think in general, restricting 
discussion is a very slippery slope. Because what about the conversation we just had? If I go to Canada and I make the point that there are a lot of petroleum byproducts inside of electric vehicles, have I just promoted fossil fuels? Do I need to go to prison for two years and pay a million dollar fine? I mean, the the simple fact that you have to ask those questions suppresses conversation and debate. So it's just remarkable because Canada is a insanely resource rich country and not just oil, but I mean, a lot of oil, dad, but also platinum, gold, idiom, uh, diamonds, uh, like they titanium, uranium, zinc, nickel, copper, iron. All the, they all have the stuff. They have all, all the, the stuff. stuff. And they have copious amounts of it, and they have barely anybody in their country. And huge amounts of space, and also out-of-control real estate prices. It's like, what's going on, I Canada? I'm not saying they should pillage all of their resources. I am saying they could be, A, a global superpower, and B, everyone in their country could be very well off and doing very well. It's just a matter of management. I mean, I wonder, just because they are a resource production state, we call that a rentier state. And the politics of rentier states is generally you have a lot of very poor people or slave labor in the worst case that extracts these resources. And these operations are owned by a group of elites who control that country's political apparatus. And that's kind of the model in a lot of you know, Sudan or South Sudan or something in these, these African nations that produce uh, battery metals and things like that. And so there is a, a story of natural resources being a curse for people. Well, when you look at the, if you go to Google Images and you search for Canada oil pipeline map and look at a couple of these different maps, you'll, you'll see like these pipelines, they, they run across Canada to get the oil out of Canada, right? <laughs> they're not, they're not for Canadians, right? <laughs> they don't run, uh, they're not running oil to like other cities and producing it there and then selling it. In fact, my Canadian friend often is uh, complaining about the price of fuel in Canada, but they have lots of oil and they have lots of pipelines. It's just these pipelines, they bring it down to the States or they bring it to uh, the shore for boats, but they're not bringing it to other Canadians. All of these pipelines run into the US. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, it it does make me like it gives me a lens to sometimes look at some of the politics in Canada and some of the decisions that the current leadership makes, because it feels like it, it is more about prioritizing resource extraction for others and not making the situation better in Canada. Like when you go through these bills, there's nothing in there really that addresses this. But yet the people of Canada have to reduce their use of fossil fuels. Canada still sells fossil fuels for people to burn in other places of the world like crazy. But if you live in Canada, you don't get to burn fossil fuel. Right. And that's obviously going to impact the quality of life of Canadians, because like it or not, it's a big country. People probably drive a lot. And so higher fuel prices is going to negatively impact their household budgets. That's money they can't spend in their local town economy. You know, they can't go out to dinner as often and, and things like that if they have to pay more for fuel. And, and the thing is, increasing these fuel prices without a real plan to develop nuclear power and real green alternatives to fossil fuels isn't solving the global warming, carbon emissions, whatever problem. It's just making things more difficult for regular people. I was uh, driving, I, I very rarely drive, but I was driving uh, this week and the radio was on NPR and it was just wall to wall, the just coverage of some something that happened in New Hampshire where, you know, like a phone call went out and it was Joe Biden's voice telling people to stay home and not vote or something. And so everyone's just freaking out about AI and election interference and how misinformation is like the worst thing ever. 
I guess I've been listening to your podcast too much, Chris, but my feeling is I don't really think misinformation is the problem. I don't think that these alternative narratives would be so attractive if mainstream policy didn't ignore these pressing economic issues that are just making everyone poor. Like explain why there are 30,000 homeless people in King County and Washington State. And then, you know, we can have a conversation about misinformation or climate change or something. Sure. It is very much like they they say one thing and then we sit here and look, well, what's happening? And we're just left to kind of put the pieces together. But I, the only thing that really gives me any kind of sense of, I guess, control or optionality is you can just stack sats and you're not, it's not, a, it's not an act of violence, but you are giving yourself optionality to opt out of this system if something goes wrong. If the people managing it who are clearly incompetent screw it up really bad, you've got this escape hatch. And it's kind of like, well, I don't want to watch everything burn to the ground, but at least I've got this if it does happen. I don't know. It's, I couldn't imagine watching all of this around us and watching the patheticness of all the pathetic leaders around us and not, and not have the hope of Bitcoin. I feel like that'd be a, I, I would, I would probably not be able to look at it. I'd probably have to just tune it all out and pretend this stuff doesn't exist. I mean, that is a weakness of the argument that Bitcoin is worthless because the value of the US dollar comes from the US's amazing economy. Yeah, it's not so amazing right now. And our peerless military power, okay, endless war, shooting million dollar missiles at $500 drones and our institutions. Well, you know, the simple fact is that both candidates for the US presidential election this year, which is the largest geopolitical event of the year, are incompetent. That's just a simple fact. And so the argument for a sort of traditional institutionalist argument for, you know, not doing Bitcoin, for putting your savings in your 401k and investing in the FANG stocks, I just don't think that that traditional argument really holds now because it seems pretty clear that the institutions that these assumptions rely on are failing in real time before our eyes. Put it all in perspective. Uh, Bill Clinton has been out of office, what, 23 years, something like that? Maybe longer? I can't remember. It's been that long. And he's still younger than Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Bill Clinton. So it's clearly things are not working well. <laughs> so Sounds like he should run again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's younger than those two. He could Spry. snag that. Uh, God. Let's, Democratic let's, nomination. Let's not even put that out there. Let's, we don't, we don't need that. In the privacy world, our favorite private Twitter viewing tool, Knitter, is shutting down. I know, Dad, this hit you hard. I know it hit you hard. I used to host my own Knitter front end, but it was always pretty unstable, to be honest. The idea was really nice, though, because it sort of like strips away all the Twitter garbage and you could still feel comfortable sharing a Twitter thread with friends, especially privacy conscious friends, and not have to send them to Twitter and go through all that crap and maybe a login and all that. And it made it more readable, too. I really liked Knitter, but it seems changes at Twitter with the guest account and stuff kind of makes it not possible. So they're they're thrown in the towel, Dad. Does this make you more interested in Noster or is it just something else entirely? A little bit. I'm still really struggling with, with Noster or Noster. I don't seem to get it. You know, like I feel like an old man. Like I the, seems the thing like that gets the most traction is talking about Bitcoin, obviously, or just like saying good morning, <laughs> just good morning to people. Outside of that, there's not much. Tra- I don't get much traction. I got a little bit when I posted a picture of Levi. But when I watched the crackdown on quote unquote misinformation or on the immutability laws here in the States for uh, social media platforms, I started thinking that's probably all going away. Social media platforms are going to get worse and worse. The long term bet is something like Noster. So I set up chrislast.com to point to uh, to my profile in Primal, chrislas.com. If if you're on Noster, come say hi. I, need, I just need some friends over there. I got nobody. I got nobody to talk to over there. Are we friends on Noster? I, well, neither one of us use it that actively. Yeah, I know. So that's the problem. I'm going to say good morning to you now. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, good morning. 
No, 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 no. Save it for Noster. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. We'll see. I feel like the more Arthur blog posts I read, the closer I come to your position on Arthur, which is these posts are basically unreadable. You got to really, you really got to be in the right mindset, at least. Some of them are better than others. His last one we linked to, not so bad. This one, I don't know what to make of this. Well, this is basically when your, your crypto bags are talking. So Arthur goes through the history of altcoin monetization strategies. So it started with the ICO, where you just create a worthless token, and then you sell it for a token that has more value. First, it was Bitcoin, then Ethereum. Then you had yield farming, where you sort of rewarded people for interacting with the protocol with a worthless token that they could then hope to sell for real money. And of course, you gave yourself, if you were the developer, a lot of these tokens up front to pay yourself for that development. And now he has a new model for how to monetize altcoins. And it's basically credit card reward points. And his argument, which seems to me to be kind of informed by the Ripple lawsuit, where the uh, Ripple was deemed to be a security when they made a securities contract with institutional investors, but then it was not a security when people bought it on an exchange because there's no securities contractor. And I don't really agree with this ruling. I think it's pretty self-serving for people who want to commit financial fraud, but okay, whatever. But with that ruling in mind, what Arthur is basically saying is if you create some trashy altcoin project, and he's of course already invested in a bunch. And so this article is to, you know, by the way, this article was translated into Chinese, which he very rarely does for his articles. Why did he do that? Because the Chinese market is always jumping on the next altcoin pump. And so that's the goal of this article is to get people interested in the tokens that he's going to pump this cycle. But the idea with this points model is you don't do an ICO because that's too close to an IPO. We know that the SEC is going to come after you. Yield farming in DeFi is clearly falling under some sort of regulated activity. So this is risky and there's probably too much inflation when you have programmatic sort of distribution of tokens for participating with the protocol. It's it's also, there's a way to game that system. So what do you do is you give points for interacting with the protocol. And what do these points do? Whatever you want. So as long as you don't explicitly say that these points will turn into tokens in the future that you can sell for money, it's not a security because there's no contract. I didn't say I would do anything. I just said, maybe, maybe that would happen. And so if you buy this with an expectation of profit, that's on you, bro. There's no contract here. I said, I might think about giving you some tokens, maybe. So this just seems like absolute trash to me. At the same time, every crypto bull market needs a new gimmick to kind of justify the valuation of worthless tokens. Or maybe we finally reached pure market nihilism and everyone's just going to buy dog with hat token. No, no. I think people love points. They love points. You mean I can get points? So if I buy it from this place, I can get points. I mean, points are great. I like points. I get points when I use my Costco card. I get points when I book an airline. All right, okay, let's do this. I mean, I love credit card points. Everybody look. There is, there are people, there are influencers. Their entire shtick is just helping people pick credit card point programs. Like the credit card points guy. It's a whole thing. People love it. It's, this is going to be a barn burner success. Get your points. And then, you know, the way to really make it work is you got to basically say the quiet part out loud. There's got to be things you can redeem those points for. And you're going to have to start marketing 
marketing at some point. So you got to walk a line here because you got to give something to spend those points on, but you can't obviously be too implicit because otherwise the SEC will say, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing over there? So that's going to be a fun line to walk. And they're all, and you know, they're all going to have to get more and more aggressive. They're all going to have to walk that line and somebody's going to step over. It's, oh, this is, oh, points. This is going to be great. And by great, I mean horrible. But this episode is brought to you by <laughs> JupiterBroadcasting.com. Uh, don't worry, we won't be doing points on our podcast, but a new episode of Self-Hosted just went out, and we discuss, well, also we get into the basics of container networking in a really great kind of concise way, but then we also discuss how we're deploying containers on our mesh VPN instead of using something like a reverse proxy. No more reverse proxy in my container setup. And then in Coder Radio 556, I got into my facial computing device. I tried out a Quest 3 in Immersed and uh, set up three three uh, virtual monitors and um, all that kind of jazz, even attended video conferences to see if I could replicate some of the Apple Vision Pro uh, productivity stuff at like a $3,200 discount. You can buy like five Quests for the cost of one Apple Vision Pro. So I thought, hmm, let's see how much work I can get done. That and more at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Well, I have got to check out this container mesh networking thing because I'm trying to, I set up my mom with Nixos and Tailscale so she can use my Nextcloud as yeah. a DR solution, but I'm advertising the route to my Nextcloud via a PFSense sort of route advertisement. So I'm not 100% sure it's going to work smooth. Mm, probably don't need to do that. Just set it up. All on Tailscale. Or on, you know, uh, NetBird's a popular one. There's a couple. I mean, I use Tailscale, but. Did you basically just have a Tailscale container on your Docker host and then it advertises all of those services on Tailscale? You can do it that way. Yep. And then just basically put them on host networking. In self-hosted, what we get into is you set up a sidecar container, a services container that spins up a Tailscale connection. And then you plumb all of the networking for the application you're actually setting up through the Tailscale services container. And you just do it for Tailscale. Everything's on Tailscale. So it's not like you have a clear net connection on your LAN. Right. With the exception of Nextcloud. Because I have like a legacy LAN setup. So I was just hoping to basically advertise my local DNS reservations add that DNS resolver to the tailnet so that Tailscale could just like figure it out and I wouldn't have to sort of redo everything I've built already. And you could do a subnet routing. I mean, I just think it's just complex. It's a lot more than you need to. If you just put everything you need access to on the tailnet, then it's just one flat network. And in Bitcoin education, we have the bitcoinrollups.org website. We have already talked a little bit about rollups, but this is the full document which goes through their history. Obviously, Satoshi first talked about them. We're not, Satoshi wasn't the first. I mean, rollups are a uh, I think are first described in 1985, um, or zero knowledge uh, proofs at least. And so, you know, basically, rollups are something that Satoshi thought would be a good idea, but didn't have the experience or the technology wasn't there to implement. And there's a lot of references and documentation on potential uh, features, scaling improvements, and uh, risks associated with rollups. Since we're likely to hear more discussion around rollups with the advent of the Citria proposal, I think this is probably going to be a good use case. And I'll just mention one of the concerns around rollups highlighted in this document is we could see increased bandwidth and storage costs. Because if you're dealing with rollups that are two megabytes or so, they're going to be taking up half a block. So these are potentially large 
transactions and might have an impact on the cost of running main chain Bitcoin nodes. So there's a lot to think about with these upgrade proposals. Yeah, I think your point's well taken. It's it's probably now at least a good time to get a baseline of what's going on over here. And you can always let us know what you think by getting in touch, Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com, or you can hit us up on Weapon X, Bitcoin Dad Pod, or get in that real-time chat. Our Matrix channel is going all the time. We'll have links in the show notes. You can use their web app or get like something like Element or Fluffy Chat and get in there, chat in our decentralized federated Bitcoin chat room. Or send us a boost, a little value for value. We always appreciate that. And we got a baller boost this week from Ulysses. We got 22,000 sats. That's a big old McDuck boost from Podversity Rights. I would boost more, but currently it's annoying to have to transfer a custodial wallet and then make the boost. Is there any way to on a mobile wallet to create a boost that just splits out the LN URL and you pay it from your wallet? Oh, man, I wish. For a hot minute, we did. Not podcastindex.org? Well, you still need to get it into an Albi wallet, right? What he's looking for is the ability to not have to move things around and load up a Lightning wallet, right? Go from on-chain to Lightning, load up the Albi wallet, and then boost. Oh, I see. So he wants to make an on-chain transaction well, to I'm a boost? Sure. What I would be happy with, and I wonder, Ulysses, if you feel this way, would just be if there was a way you could go to, like, say, the Bitcoin Dad website. This is not currently possible. And you could use Zeus or Phoenix or whatever mobile app you want for Lightning, and you could just scan the QR code. Or, like, if you're using the Aqua wallet, maybe you keep them in Liquid. It just does those back-end swap for you automatically and sends them. What I've been telling people to do in the meantime is you can do uh, bolts.exchange. That's a pretty cheap way to go from on-chain to Lightning or vice versa. Um, But we are still looking for a developer to come along and make a boostable QR code based for a web form. And it would need to be something where you could set your name, the boost amount, and a message. Then you click a button and a QR code screen comes up with all the split information and you scan that and it sends the boost. Fountain FM had this for like 10 minutes before 1.0 came out and then they kind of simplified their website and took took it off their website. It would make things a lot easier. But in the meantime, you could do what I do, which is I, I've just been using Fountain FM with their strike integration. And about once a week, you know, I'll just I'll go buy, you know, 50 bucks worth of sats or 20, whatever I'm boosting, and I'll just top it off. And I just spend those sats directly that way. Uh, he continues, let's say you have a $1 million mortgage. Would you consider this person to be a net consumer until this debt is paid off, putting aside the appreciation and other potential assets? I don't think so. I think there could be a lot of reasons why you might have a $1 million mortgage. I don't quite understand the question. I mean, maybe the question is, if you've got a large amount of debt, even if it's associated with a, you know, an asset that might potentially increase in value over time, are you are you rich? Are you well off? I mean, I think it kind of depends on your cash flows and how uh, comfortable you are servicing that mortgage. It's just my two cents. I think that sounds good. Thank you for the boost. Thank you so much. Yukon Cornelius boosts in 9,100 sats with the message, Hey, Dad and Chris, long time now boost. I'm writing in to encourage other plebs to get a full accounting of their stacks. Over the years, I have personally used five to six different exchanges, including BlockFi, LOL, and it was quite the process. But now I have a full understanding of my cost basis by putting the data in Quicken. Hope this is a good PSA. Peace and blessings. Well, thank you so much for the PSA. And I think it is a good idea to go through your wallets and accounts and get those into your own self-custody and figure out what you actually have. One of the great joys is discovering a wallet you forgot about and didn't completely lose and then feeling rich for a day. I don't think I could get that for a lot of my early stuff. I just don't think that's possible. But probably for the last few years, I've been pretty, pretty careful. So yeah, I could probably, I wonder, does anybody else do this out there and why do you do this? 
boost in and let us know. Are you uh, are you keeping track of your cost basis, or do you look at it like anything below a million is kind of a rounding error? So assuming it's going to go to a million one day, you don't really care if you got it at twenty, a hundred, or or forty. I suppose, but let me know. Boost in, sir. Lurkslot comes in two thousand six hundred and seventy four sats. Says I'm boosting number one twenty because I can't boost or stream sats for some reason. Something going on with that node, Dad. He says. But then, funny, he follows up. I couldn't stream or boost this episode a few minutes ago, but now I can. So I wanted to let you know it is working. Maybe there was just a Podverse glitch. Maybe. I actually tend to blame that stuff on Tor. Do I have a Tor node? By default, but I'm not sure if you do. I do, and 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 I can have plenty of liquidity, and I still just, you know, I'm undiscoverable by the Lightning Network sometimes. So there's disadvantages to running on the Tor Network, and um, I think that's why if you really depend on something like Boost, you should uh, kind of split it up amongst your own self-hosted s- system and maybe some kind of like voltage back thing or something that you sweep off of. Because uh, having everything on one spot, I mean, if uh, I, I would probably be missing one out of 10 boosts, maybe one out of eight boosts. That's a um, lot. Yeah, it's not good right now. It's the, and so I think I'm going to have to go clear net, but I would also, anybody out there that has any counseling on moving a lightning network or a lightning node, either an existing or a new one onto clear net and what the advantages and disadvantages are, please help me understand because I can only kind of assume. Thank you for the boost, Lurks a lot. And Mere Mortals podcast sends in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats, and people laugh differently as well. This is in response to our conversation about different dog barks. Kaka kaka ka in Portuguese. Yeah, 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 yeah in Spanish. My fave animal noise is the rooster that goes kitty kitty ki in Spanish. Hope <laughs> you guys have fun saying those out loud. Chris, would you like to say some animal noises? You know, I do like the yeah, 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 yeah in Spanish. That I could get behind. Uh, the yeah, kiki, kiki, kiriki, uh, that they lose me. I mean, it's so obvious. That's not a kiki, kiki, right? That's how your rooster sounds? Well, when they're getting warmed up, that's how they sound. You know, they do that kind of, they draw it out from it and then they, you know, they start doing that. Can you stop squeezing that rooster in your office? (laughs) I mean, that might be animal abuse. (laughs) You asked for it. You asked for it. (laughs) Alec comes in with 10,000 sats uh, from Fountain and it's a boost for the low noise boys. Low noise for life. That should be our, that should be our slogan. The low noise boys. With a Z, not an S though. What's up? Loomer boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Who's listening to, can I get your GPS cords? Around minute 47, dad is a bit fear-mongery about RBF policy differences leading to chain splits. This is not a major concern, as RBF policy is more of a TX relay thing, not a block consensus thing. Different mining pools have different mempools, and the consensus rules don't care. Thanks for the high signal to noise ratio. And thank you so much for the boost and the correction. I appreciate being a little more educated on the subject. Yeah, I, I, I found that enlightening. And um, a correction via boost is just a great, it's a nice combination, right? We get accurate information in the show and a little value. Appreciate that, Loomer. Oppie1984 comes in with 4,000 sets. And he writes, as boosters, we are Chris's friend's roommate from college. <laughs> What's the reference here? I, I, I think it's just like, you know, like we're friends. But like distance, like we know each other. Like, oh yeah, I like that guy, but I never really hung out with him. You know. <laughs> Although sometimes we do get the privilege. I am going to be in Pasadena for scale. So if we have listeners that are in the area, we are having a lunch. Details at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. So maybe you could be my buddy. You can relive your college days. <laughs> Thank you, everybody who did boost in. We have the two thousand sat cutoff for what we read on air, but we do read all the boosts, and we had nine boosters individually sent in twelve boosts total, and we stacked fifty two thousand seven hundred and three sets. 
not fantastic, but I do have some good news. Uh, we are sending some of those good sats now to the No BS Bitcoin website because they just consistently are also high signal producers and we'll often cite them in the show or link to them. So now some of your boosts will go to the No BS Bitcoin website to support them as well. And if you got value from the show, please do consider boosting in with a new podcast app. We really appreciate it. And if you have recommendations of other entities we could split our boosts with that are high signal or contributing to the Bitcoin space, please let me know. This is has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on February 9th, 2024. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely, as always, with with me. It's Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time.